Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Move some of this here. See if we can get to, so I can see. That okay? You can hear me okay? Excellent. A couple of weeks ago, Tim, well, probably more than that, uh, Tim contacted me uh, to speak on his behalf. Some of you may know me, some of you don't. My name is Paul Stevenson. Okay? And uh, so my roots go back a long, long time ago through my generations, back to probably early 1820s from uh, this area. So uh, I'm not that old, though. <laughs> Today I'm going to talk about Jesus on relationships. It's um, scripture that Tim had given to me to, uh, to look at. It's from Matthew chapter 5, and a bit of 6, and into the first part of 7. And I'm going to be sharing the passages that I'll be reading will be from the New Living Translation. So it may be a little different than what you're used to following. But anyhow, it's a... It's an interesting exploration of what takes place in our lives. <clears throat> Some of you get the flyers, I'm sure, that big bundle of papers that comes every week. And uh, it's often sort of an outer wrap is on there, and the picture of a guy named Jim Day. And he has a quote that it says, Joy, sadness, even rage, a great story should stir up emotions. And there are plenty of great news stories that we see in the world around us all the time. You know, there's stories, headlines often highlight the tragic breakdown of human relationships. Friendships that suddenly go all amok. People become bitter enemies. Brothers who turn against one another in business and strike out in anger. People who find their lives consumed with hatred and desire for revenge. And then there are the stories that stoke our cynicism of of public people that, you know, one point we see them there being lauded for their charity and their generosity, and then later we find out it's all a big fake, that they're just, they've inflated their claims of generosity and benevolence, and the reality they're stealing from the charities that they supposedly have been championing. The words of Jesus strike at the core of human selfishness, and they challenge us to the to value others above ourselves and relationships. Jesus talks about the strength of emotions that work at, at the heart of what goes on in our, our lives. In Matthew 5, 38, he says, You've heard the law says, The punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. And if you're sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. And if a soldier demands you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Just completely goes against our desire for personal vindication, doesn't it? It's just completely against our, our human nature. The natural man wants to get revenge. We want to get back at somebody. But the thing is, you cannot fight evil with evil. Eye for an eye. We like to quote that, don't we? But it never was meant to give permission for personal vengeance. What 
was meant is seeking justice that was a, to take the offender to court where the sentence would be ex executed legally, muted out, that a person was to be punished exactly and no more than to fit the crime. Jesus wasn't revoking the standard of justice, but he's telling us that we don't need to look for justice in this world because we're never really going to get satisfied by having somebody else punished in the same way. God alone is the final author and source of justice. We have to trust in him to provide it. We need to let God be the one who vindicates. And if someone hits us in the nose or, or strikes us on you know, both cheeks or whatever else, are we free to hit back at that point? No, okay, he's hit me both cheeks. Can I hit him now? No. Jesus gives us a radical example. It, it, it's not permission to explore the limits, but it's to try to get to us the matter of human dignity and humility and resistance. A backhanded blow to the right cheek was the very most extreme form of public insult that was given in that day. Give somebody a slap in the back of the hand and the inside of the cheek was that. And, and God's prophet suffered it. Jesus suffered it. And the general reaction was that they would look for a challenge to a duel or whatever else, but what he says is show holy dignity in your response and restraint. Don't retaliate. Jesus provides also a shocking, graphic, almost humorous illustration of what he means by matter of non-resistance. He says, somebody comes along and they want, they demand you give them your shirt. Give them your coat too. And it would almost literally sound like um, as if you would leave most Christians standing stark naked. Jesus isn't advocating nudity. He's not advocating that we take and empty every bit of our pockets out to give to everybody who asks of anything that we ask from anything. But he's saying value, honor, and things more than, than, than we value the kingdom a lot of times. We value our the way that we look and the way that we appear and the way that we so positively look like giving charity. Back then, in that country, a lot of people, if they were poor, uh, they only had one set of clothing. It's not a matter of picking up all the clothes you have laying around on the floor, you know, and throwing them in the wash and at the end of the week. You had one set of clothing. And the biblical law said that they were not allowed to give or to take a man's coat as a pledge for a loan. Because a lot of times, that's also what they used to cover themselves up when they slept. Their coat was also their bedding. And, it, and so, it would, to take, they said that it would take whatever legal means necessary to get it back if it was seized. Jesus' words here force us to grapple with the principle. Nothing a person can take from us really matters in the end anyway. 
We have to love our enemies and seek to turn them into friends. And the other thing he talked about, the matter of the lawyer, of the, of the soldiers. Back then, the tax revenue was a little different. And the Roman soldiers didn't mind taking and exercising their might to get a little bit more than they were getting paid. I mean, that happens in a lot of these countries now. And they would take and force anybody to perform any type of service or give them anything that they basically wanted within some degree of reason. And so they could ask the person to take and, you know, carry their pack, carry their, their, their goods for a mile. And he says, in that case, go the extra mile. The truth of the matter is, many times, people would, would see that, that matter of giving assistance to the enemy. And many times people would be, would, it would be a matter of life and death. Many Christians were killed for seeming to, to take and give aid to the enemy. In the first century Palestine, there were very few safe vehicles, even for nonviolent social protest against the Romans. And so Romans viewed most public protests as linked with revolution and, and that was punished accordingly. And that's, as a result, there were a lot of people that died. In our society, where Christian egalitarianism has helped shape the concept of justice, nonviolent protest stands a lot better chance of working. They didn't have that. There are many of the Christian writers, such as C.S. Lewis and others, who struggle with the idea of loving your enemy while trying to kill him. Uh, some of you may have heard of the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German Lutheran pastor and a pacifist who opposed Hitler's regime. But he ultimately decided to participate in the assassination attempt against Hitler. He rationalized he preferred to do evil rather than do to be evil, arguing that tolerating the evil of Hitler was tantamount to supporting that evil. Well, the plot failed, and Bonhoeffer and his co-conspirators, including his brother, were, were executed. But what would we have done had we been in Bonhoeffer's place? So a lot of times it's easy to kind of to judge in some respects. Jesus teaching means that we need to depend on God rather than on human weapons, although God may sometimes raise up human weapons to fight the oppressors. But if we value justice and compassion for people rather than the matter of trying to get our own justice, then we must calculate the matter of what it means to go that extra mile. There's a story that's found and written in the catacombs of Rome. And it's the story of a rich man named Proculus who had hundreds and hundreds of slaves. And one of the slaves that he owned was named Paulus, who was such so trustworthy that Proculus made him the steward, the chief steward, chief slave over all the others in his house. And one time he decided that he needed more workers, and so they went to the slave market. And they decided to examine the men to see if they were strong and healthy. And, and among the slaves stood a feeble, weak old man. 
And Paulus urged his owner to buy this slave. And, and Proctor said, why? He's good for nothing. Paulus said, go ahead, buy him. He's cheap, and I promise that the work in your household will get done even better than before. So Proculus agreed, and he purchased this old slave, and Paulus made good on his word. And, and the work in the house went better than ever before. In fact, Proculus observed that Paulus now was working for two men, and the old slave did no work at all, while Paulus tended to him, gave him the best food, and made him rest. Well, this kind of raised the curiosity of the owner, Proculus. And he said to him, who is this slave? You, you know, I, I value you, and I, I don't mind you protecting the old man, but tell me, who is he? Is, your father, is it your father who's fell into slavery? Paulus said, no, it's someone to whom I owe a lot more than to my father. Teacher, then? No. Somebody I owe even more. Who then? He is my enemy. Your enemy? Yes, he is the man who killed my father and sold us, his children, into slavery. At this, the owner Proculus stood speechless. Paul said, I am a disciple of Christ who has taught us to love our enemies and to reward evil with good. Whether persecuted as Christians or for other reasons, we must respond with love and with kindness. And there are times we have to resist injustice and refuse to comply with demands that compromise justice but we must do so in kindness and love, not with violence, not with the matter of looking to try to get even and to find justice on our terms. Jesus called his disciples to be harmless as doves and wise as serpents and, and he, to be ruled by the law of love. And when the time came for his father to see that the hope of mankind was to pay the price, and he went to the cross, and he was insulted, and he was insulted, and he was attacked, and he was physically injured, and yet he did not say anything. He waited for his father to, to vindicate him, to raise him from the dead, to reward evil with good. Jesus went on, he said, you've heard the law says, love your neighbor. Hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and in that way you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. And if you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you were kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. See, Jesus demands that we go beyond the regular things of this world to love our enemies. The contemporary saying of that day was, love your enemy, but get even with your, with your, with, or love your neighbor, but get even with your enemy. Personal enemies... Back then as now, will come. 
But the context means that Jesus wants us to seek the good things for those who oppose us. I read a story of an Ar Armenian woman who had been taken and held captive along with her brother by the Turks in one of the wars. And her brother was slain before her eyes by one of the Turkish soldiers. She eventually escaped and she later became a nurse in a military hospital. And one day she was stunned to find that the same soldier who had killed her brother had been captured and wounded and brought to the hospital where she worked. And something within her cried, Vengeance! But a stronger voice said for her to love, and so she nursed the man back to health. And eventually that recuperating soldier had the courage to, to speak to her, and he said, why didn't you let me die? He was puzzled. And her answer was, I am a follower of him who said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Jesus appeals to the positive instead of the, the negative response in our lives. It's easy to love those who love you, but to have righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees, we have to have a higher standard of lives. Another story that I read, and it just it keeps coming back to me over and over again. During World War II, Corey Tenbo. She and her family had assisted Jews, hiding them in their home. And they were caught and they were sent to a Nazi concentration camp. And all the other members of her family died except for her. The war ended and the camps had been liberated. And Corey went on to speak in various churches, sharing about God's love and faithfulness in the midst of all that horror. She wrote the book, The Hiding Place. And it was at a church service in Munich, she said, that I saw him. A former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center of Ravensburg. He was the first of our actual jailers that I'd seen since that time. And suddenly he was there, and, and the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, my sister Betsy's plain back blanched face, it all came back to me. And he came up to her, the church was emptying, and, and he said, how grateful I am for your message, Paul. I, to think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. And he came forward and he thrust his hand out to shake hers. And she said, I, who would preach so often to the people of the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. And she said, even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. And was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed the silent prayer. Jesus, I prayed. I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder 
Along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for the stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it's not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness the world's healing hinges, but on God's. And when he tells us to love our enemies, he gives us, along with the command, the love itself. It's difficult, but Jesus demands us to be perfect like that. And God's law, law was never about mere rules. In fact, his law shows us our inability to do the things. We're unable to be perfect by what we do. And instead, God desires righteousness of the heart, totally devotion to God's purposes. And we have to desire God's will so much that that takes control of us and the love for him and his will is what must transform us. Jesus also went on, he talked about the matter of giving and of the needy. In, uh, in the sixth chapter, the first four verses, he said, watch out, don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing the trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private and your Father who sees everything will reward you. Who watches? You know the old saying, if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to listen, does it make a sound? Well, the kind of thing is, if we do something that is good and if there's no one there to witness, does it really count? Some people would say no. You know, from time to time we see the news published of some event concerning so-called acts of philanthropy or a charity or a public institution or university received some sort of a large financial gift and displayed there with a picture on the, on the print page or in, in the media, electronic media. And the building is named after the, the donor. Their reward. And even in ancient society where some first century Jewish leaders were called at times the public fast, and they didn't believe in it, they'd still do it because they were feared that they'd be criticized. It was all about public image. Jesus said true religion is different from the way of that. You see, it's possible to pray, to fast, to give alms, and do it all for the wrong motives. One of humans' greatest Human religion's greatest temptations is to act piously to gain the praise of others. You know, it's possible for a person to be a secret atheist, attend church regularly, practice some sort of religion without the slightest element of faith for the sake of the attention and public praise. But we must impress God alone. Public acts of righteousness or of charity, they're hollow. God knows every thought and deed, and it's his approval alone that matters. He promises something better than a charitable donation 
and the deduction on one's income tax. Many of the contemporaries of that time believe that charity delivers a person from death and stores up treasure in heaven. Sometimes I think sometimes we believe that, that our good here on earth is putting up points, grounding points for heaven. That phrase, receive their reward in full. That was something that merchants would write regularly on receipts to indicate that no further payment was required. And Jesus is saying that those who give charity to be admired by others will have already received what they want. Others reap approval. That's it. They'll not be rewarded again for their deeds in the day of judgment. If more of us Christians feared God, the realization would come to us that religion is not the matter of output. The motive of the heart is what really counts. Said, so don't do your judgment for the sake of others. The last part I just want to share is the matter of lofty-mindedness. Sometimes it affects our relationships. Sometimes we think we're above others. In the first six verses of chapter 7, he said, Do not judge others and you will not be judged, for you will be treated as you treat others. And the standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. Why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you've logged your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see because of the log in your own? Hypocrites, first get rid of the log in your own eye. And then you'll see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. They'll trample the pearls and turn them into you. You know, some people think it's okay to criticize everyone. And they got something to say about everyone. You know those people. And then there are other people who will say that no one has the right to criticize or pass judgment on anybody. And that's their opinion. Don't you criticize them for that. But the idea is more than the proverbial wisdom of what goes around comes around. Many people have ripped the passage out of context. Jesus doesn't oppose offering correction. And he doesn't oppose the matter of us being corrected in accordance with the law and the will of God. But only if we are correcting with the wrong spirit, as if we are up here and the other people are down here. We tend to apply ethics to other people rather than ourselves. You know, many times people will say, I wish so-and-so had been here to the church today to hear that. Jesus warns us that not even if we know people's hearts, we're not necessarily in the position to judge unless we've lived sinless lives. Judging assumes a divine prerogative. The final judgment will belong to God alone. Those who seek to judge others in the end will possibly are usurping God's position. There is none so blind as he who will not see. Throwing pearls to swine. He said it's a wasted effort. It's worthless to try to correct someone who is unwilling to listen. 
Correcting those who will not receive correction is futile. Proverbs 23.9 says, Do not speak to a fool, for he will scorn the wisdom of your words. We're not to prejudge who may receive the message, but we should not try to force on those who show an unwillingness to accept it. We need to carefully, discerningly continue to offer wisdom and the hope of the kingdom to those who are willing to receive what we offer, just as God continues patiently to offer that to us. You know, there are strong emotions in our relationships. Human interaction causes a lot of times to hate people instead of loving them. To seek revenge instead of forgiving. To judge instead of being humble and being considering their relationship. And the words of Jesus strike at the core of human selfishness and challenge us to value others above ourselves in real relationships. The world's way is hatred. Revenge, it's hypocrisy, selfishness. God offers us a different path through Jesus Christ. If you've watched the news, you may have seen something this past week. It kind of caught me by surprise. I've been seeing it before. But this past Tuesday, a jury trial ended in Dallas, Texas, of a former white police officer who had shot her black unarmed neighbor to death in September 2018. Amber Geiger claims she became confused and mistakenly entered her neighbor's upstairs unit instead of her own. And she entered the apartment, the unlocked apartment of Botham Jean, and shot him to death while he was eating ice cream in his living room. She was convicted of murder and a verdict that prompted tears of relief from his family and chants of Black Lives Matter from the crowds outside the courtroom. On Wednesday, she was sentenced to 10 years for killing her neighbor. And the family and friends had a chance to speak during the sentencing hearing. One of the most shocking moments the victim's younger brother, Grant, who was only 18, spoke words amidst of, of, of his pain, of grace, offering Amber Geiger his forgiveness and a challenge to go to God and seek his forgiveness. If you haven't seen it, you can even see that on, on, online. You can find it on YouTube or whatever else. But he said he loved her like everyone else and personally didn't want the best for her didn't want her to go to jail. He said the best thing, and what his brother Botham would have wanted as well, was for her to give her life to Christ. He didn't want anything bad to happen to her, and he asked the judge permission, who gave it to him, and he went down, and he embraced, and he hugged Amber Geiger. Shortly afterward, the judge also hugged her and gave her a Bible, and the two of them prayed together. And then that evening, the family were attending services at Dallas West Church of Christ. And Botham's father, Bertram, spoke of his young son's actions. He said, I'm not really surprised because we know how we raised him. <coughs> the Holy Spirit was working. And father also said he'd like to become Geiger's friend. He said, at some point, 
I think I have the ability to do it, and I would like to be a friend despite my loss. That's why we are Christians. They were able to forgive the person who murdered their loved one. They wished the best for her, a life in Jesus Christ. God's sinless son was murdered by mankind. God forgives, wishes the best for us as well. Give your life to Jesus Christ. What's your response? Father God, Jesus not only came into this world to speak to us about love and forgiveness and humbleness and generosity, but he showed that in his life by giving up things of this world, even his own life, to love us to the point of dying on the cross. Father, we realize that it's not easy in this world to live as a Christian. We realize that it's so counter to the culture, so counter to the nature of man. Father, yet that challenges to us. And you give to us not only the forgiveness, but you give to us the power through your spirit to forgive, to love, and to act in ways that changes the way that the world sees you and changes the way that we see the world. Father, I ask your blessing upon the people in this congregation. Make them generous in spirit. Make them forgiving. Make them loving. Make Jesus Christ shine in their lives. And as we go this week, may people say, we do it. That's why, because we are Christians. We ask this in Jesus' name.